Good morning. Thank you for having me. My name is Matthew Shores. I'm a pastor of Woodside Community Church over in Queens. It is a privilege whenever I get to be here with you all. I love your pastor. I love to get to watch and witness what God is doing here at first from afar. And I love that I get to come and participate in that here and there. It's been two years since I've been invited back, so I don't know about that last sermon. Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad that I'm here now, so thank you. Let me apologize in advance uh, for my voice. Like the Fujiwaras, we added child number five this year. And as they're probably learning, it seems that once you have five children, by the time one bug runs through all seven of you, it's time for the next one. So we now exist in a perpetual state of sickness, it seems. Uh, thankful that God is perpetually present and perfectly faithful. I'm recovering, but my voice Hasn't gotten the memo, so pray for my voice if you think about it. But this will be a wonderful opportunity to demonstrate the truth that the power is in the Word and not in the messenger of that Word. And so please do begin turning in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 13. I was glad to hear that you guys are reading through John. We're going to jump ahead to John 13, and we're going to look at verses 31 through 35 this morning. John 13 31 through 35. John 13 begins with the words, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Love is one of the dominant themes of John 13 through 17, often referred to as Jesus's farewell discourse as he teaches and prepares his disciples for his departure. And over and over again in these chapters, Jesus comes back to love. For there are few things more important for us to understand than love, and there are few things we more misunderstand than love, and there are no things in which the glory of God is more clearly revealed than in love. And so we must work hard to get love right. The whole world loves the idea of love. But catch this, only we know what it means. For it is only in Christ that love is truly revealed. Let's begin with an illustration, hopefully trying to illustrate our confusion I like making fun of myself. I like trying to convince everyone how terrible I am so that God's grace seems all the better. I love running. Are there any runners in here? Any fellow runners in here? We'll talk afterwards. I love, I'm, I'm obsessed. It's, it's a problem, but I truly love running. And because I love both myself, I really do, and I love my wife, I have, as a husband, mastered the art of doing things that appear to bless her but always end up blessing me. As a recovering sinner, I am profoundly selfish, and I am very good at looking like I'm doing things for others when I'm actually really doing them for myself. Looking like I'm loving others when I'm actually really loving myself. An example, once a month, I make my Monday morning run to Dominique Ansel's Bakery down in the West Village. It's a delightful run. I'm in Woodside, Queens. That means it's three boroughs, it's two bridges, it's nice neighborhoods, lovely views. My wife, Melissa, loves food. Uh, if one of the love languages was food, that would be hers. And she loved desserts. And the cronut is one of the great inventions of recent history. If you have not had one, please go and get one. There's a new flavor every month, so we've gotten in the habit of once a month, I run down there, we try the new flavor, and I run and, and bring it back. And so, I'm loving my wife by getting up early, giving up lots of my time. I'm exhausting myself on a long run. I am buying a costly dessert with my hard-earned money. Again, we know what I'm really, really actually doing. I'm loving myself and seeking my own good, and what I'm just doing is coming up with some way to justify it a little bit by bringing back something for her. I love the run. 
I love the long time it takes, as that's more book listening time. I love wearing myself out because I feel better and I sleep better. And I love delicious desserts that I don't have to feel bad about eating because I just ran for a really long time. So again, it's, I'm looking like I'm doing this thing for my wife, but if we're being completely honest, it's really all about me and my love of self. But my run takes me over the Williamsburg Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge is beautiful. The Williamsburg Bridge Not so much. Uh, But the one thing that the Williamsburg Bridge has that the Brooklyn Bridge does not is graffiti. I don't know if you have ever walked the Williamsburg Bridge, but the whole path is just littered with graffiti. And in my quick, unscientific survey, the last time I made this run, it was very clear that the main, most popular theme of all the graffiti was love. Love was written everywhere all over the bridge. Love this, love that, love by itself. The thing that I saw most was this phrase, love is gold, written in gold with a little heart for the O, all over the bridge. Gold's a treasure. It is something of great value. Love then is supposedly a treasure. It's something of great value. My favorite tag, though, I saw a number of times, said, protect yo heart. I really liked that one. Protect yo heart heart. I think that's pretty interesting. Plus, it has the numbers four, two, three beside it. And that's actually a reference to Proverbs 4, 23, which says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I was like, all right, pretty cool. Maybe this is Christian. Maybe it's got some Christian tagging or graffiti going on here. So I got home and I looked it up and apparently it's a movement all about prioritizing self-love and self-appreciation. So that was a bummer, but now I have my perfect opening illustration here. Love is gold. Protect your heart. I can't even pronounce it right. I'm sorry. It's so embarrassing. Protect your heart, but actually that means love yourself. And listen, if you take these two ideas together, and if you take my tendency to come up with sneaky ways to look like I'm loving others, while ultimately I'm loving myself, that demonstrates that this whole love thing that everyone loves and proclaims and talks about, maybe it's not quite as clear and simple as we would like it to be. You, like me, whether you know it or not, are probably pretty good about being theoretically all about the idea of love while possibly doing very little actual loving. And so I don't know about you, but I need the words of Christ here. You probably need the words of Christ here. We need the example of Christ. We need the love of Christ. But we are just so assaulted and overwhelmed with the world's false idea of love, that we need extra help and we need to do some extra work to try and get love right. So we're going to try something a little bit differently. I want to try to help us come at this at a different angle. I want to try to consider love through two paradoxes. You know what a paradox is, right? It's, It's an idea or it's a principle that that seems absurd, or it seems self-contradictory, but actually turns out not to be at all. The short passage I'm about to read is, is very simple. Jesus talks about his glory, and then he talks about his disciples' love. And so we're going to consider it in just two points this morning, two paradoxes that will hopefully help us just a little bit understand this passage and understand our Lord and start to better understand what this profound love is that he calls us to. So all I want us to see this morning, two points, we're going to start with the glory of death and then we're going to end with the law of love. Glory and death don't usually go together. In our minds, law and love don't usually either. Well, maybe considering them in these terms can give us a fresh appreciation of what Jesus is saying in these well-known verses here. Listen, what I want you to see, Jesus is not at all what the world thinks that he is. And Jesus is often not at all what we think that he is. And Jesus is so much better than what the world thinks that he is, and is often so, so much better than even we think that he is. And his love, it's, it's amazing. 
And so I want to confront you with that love. I want to confront you with the love that you are then called to in light of his profoundly beautiful love for you. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is to come. He's telling them the main thing that they need to know to face what is to come. What do you need to know to face and live this difficult life and still find joy in it? You need glory and you need love. Let's read God's word. John 13, it's nice and short. Short text does not mean short sermon, so don't get your hopes up. John 13, I'll read for you verses 31 through 35. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you would, bow with me. Let's, let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Gracious, good, present, heavenly Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that your word is living and active. I believe that you can do great things through your word. Father, I am weak in every way. I'm insufficient in every way. But Father, you are powerful in every way. And you are more than sufficient in every way. And so I pray that you would work through your word. I pray that you would work even through the weakness of my voice and, and through the weakness of your messenger. Father, I pray that Christ would be clear. I pray that we would see his glory. I pray that our hearts would be stirred with a great affection for him. And Father, I pray for First Baptist Church that that great affection for him would overflow into a supernatural affection for one another. I pray that this church would be marked by the gospel and that it would be marked by the love that that gospel produces and that you would draw people to you through this church. Father, do great things through your word. Do things that I cannot do. Do things in us and for us that none of us can do for ourselves. Father, please help us in this time. Glorify your name and bless your people. And we ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Point number one, we begin with the glory of death. Again, you don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to be a scholar to figure out what our verse two, first two verses are about. Always be looking for repetition in your Bible reading. Repetition tells you what a passage is about. And in the first two verses, we see the word glory in some form five times. Jesus says in 31, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. But I want you to consider first that now. It's that now and the context into which Jesus speaks these words that makes these words so amazing. And glory, we know what glory is, right? You, you can think of, of glory as greatness. It's used kind of two ways in Scripture. It's sometimes used internally in reference to Jesus' inherent, intrinsic, infinite worth. Remember the bridge said love is gold. It has great value, worth. That's the glory of gold. So Christ's glory can refer to his great value and worth. He, he's infinitely above and beyond anything else of value. His glory can simply refer to his, his godness. Sometimes it's used interchangeably with, with his holiness. It's just his transcendent otherness, his goodness, his um, beauty, his external or his internal glory. But also frequently in the scripture, glory is used more externally to refer not to just the internal inherent greatness of Christ, but the display of that greatness, the revelation of it, the, the showing and shining forth of Christ's infinite value and worth. 
And so we all understand the, the basic idea of glory. It's, it's big and it's great and it's impressive and magnificent and it's beautiful and it's successful. Uh, the, the very first match of the World Cup is going on right now. Some of you are maybe kind of trying to keep an eye on it or watching. Any Ecuadorians in here kind of watching the match? No, the, the whole World Cup is about glory. This is the greatest and most glorious sporting event in the whole of the world. It's it's big. Everyone's watching, uh, praising, going crazy. Glory. Again, we're, we're all of us looking for glory and pursuing that which we think is glorious in, in all that we do. And we all of us have an underlying assumption of what such glory should look like. And it's not this. We haven't yet read the first part of verse 31. Look at it. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said this. Now again, we're jumping into the middle of a story. Well, when who had gone out? Well, Judas. Pastor Harry just just preached on Judas for you a, a few weeks ago. If you look back in chapter 13, verse 21, we see there that Jesus is troubled in his spirit. 14.1, famously, he's going to say, hey, do not be troubled. Well, it's because here, Jesus is first troubled. Why is Jesus troubled? He says in 21, one of you will betray me. In verse 27, we see that Satan has entered into Judas. In verse 30, the phrase that directly precedes all this glory is, and it was night. And night in John's gospel is, is just pregnant with, with symbolic, metaphoric weight. There's deep physical darkness representative of the far deeper spiritual darkness. So catch the context leading into our passage. Trouble, betrayal, Satan, Judas, darkness, glory. What? Again, even more clearly and confusingly, our context is death and glory. And it's crazy. If you just jumped right into the story at chapter 13 and we're reading all this, you would more naturally expect Jesus to say in verse 31, after all that, now is the Son of Man humiliated. But Jesus says glorified. And the amazing thing, of course, is that it's both. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus has gotten low. Jesus has taken on the role of the servant. I, I hate feet. I think feet are disgusting. Um, I, when people come into my house and they sit on my couch and then they put their feet on my couch, why, why do you do that? Why do people put their feet on the couch? But I don't say anything because I'm a nice person, so I don't say it. But feet are gross, and feet back then were even grosser. You didn't touch people's feet. Servants didn't have to wash people's feet. Hebrew servants didn't. Here is Jesus Christ. He comes and he washes the disciples' filthy feet. And I can't prove this, but I think that Paul was thinking of that when Paul composed the beautiful Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, in verse 6, Paul tells us that Jesus, who was in the form of God, he, he was God, the God of all glory. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There's Jesus disrobing, clothes of a servant, getting low, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled. That is, he humiliated. He got low. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The very next verse, Philippians 2.9, begins with a Therefore, because of that, precisely because of the humiliation and the death, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there again, we see death, humiliation, glory. And how is that possible? It's only because of what that humiliating death is accomplishing. That's what we think of when we think of glory, right? Success, 
accomplishment, greatness, victory. Well, then there is nothing more glorious than this. Because there was nothing more successful. There was nothing that accomplished more. There was no greater victory than the humiliating death of Christ. And I love that you're reading John. John's one of my favorite writers. He's really good with words. And repeatedly in John, we see this connection that John makes very subtly and beautifully between crucifixion and glorification. John likes to to play with words, and he employs this beautiful one a couple of times of of Jesus being lifted up. And and it's this beautiful play on words because being lifted up is, that's glory language. You're you're lifted up, you're, you're high, you're seen, you're praised. But that's also cross language, as you're literally lifted up into the air. But again, but how can this be? How can Jesus be glorified in death and God, the God of life, be glorified in death? Again, because of what that death does. Throughout John, I wish we had time to just kind of go back through the whole thing as John has just been seeding the ground for all that is about to come. John has, uh, Jesus has just said, for example, back in 1247 that he has come to save the world. He has just said in 1232 that when he is, here's the language, when he's lifted up from the earth, he will draw all people to himself. And then John tells us, showing by what kind of death, cross, lifted up, he was going to die. In 1125, Jesus has just said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He has just said in 1010, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. How? The very next verse, 1011, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for, who bear, for the sheep. And again, on and on and on we could go. One more. He's the good shepherd. Behold, also, 129, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's the only thing that makes any sense of any of this. That's the only way that death can be glory. Sin is why. The sin we talked about in the beginning that makes the whole of life, the whole of reality, all about us. For that is what sin ultimately is. I often try to, I try to slip in a little bit of a Greek or Latin to every sermon to try to impress people and convince you that I'm intelligent, but this one is actually helpful. This one's not just unnecessary. But Augustine described sin famously 1,500 years ago with the phrase, incurvitas, you can hear the word curve, incurvitas in se. Se just means self. So sin, what is sin? Sin simply turns us in. Sin curves us in on ourself. I can look like I'm loving others when I'm actually loving myself. I can look like I'm preaching a sermon for the glory of God and for the good of you when I'm actually doing it for the glory of myself and the good of myself. How deceitful our sin that turns us in on ourself is. But being turned in on and ultimately focused upon and loving self, I am then necessarily also turned away from and not focusing on the God who is life. My loving Lord, my, my creator, my redeemer, the one who literally is life. The one in whom the, the whole of reality holds together. Colossians 2 is one of the most profound verses. It says the whole of reality kind of holds together in Christ. What does that mean? Christ is the theory of everything. Everything exists within him and for him and through him. It's, it's, it's amazing. And so we've got to work hard to see our sin for what it really is, to, to try and understand. I used to really struggle with Romans 6, 23. Why is the wages of sin death? What's the big deal. Get over it. It's because our sin is so much more than making some mistakes. It is so much more than breaking some rules, right? Our sin is cosmic treason. Our sin is an attempt to un-God God, to to dethrone God. The, The Puritans used to talk about sin as deicide, as God murder. 
as the attempt to kill God so that we can be God. That's what you're doing every time. Every time in your sin. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how small it is. You're saying, no, you move aside. You are wrong. I am right. You must not then be God. I must then be God. You must not then be good. I. Every time in our sin, no, self, not God, self. Every time. And the God who is life, the God who is perfect joy, the God who is center, the center of reality does not, and he cannot take that lightly. And as our sin rebels against and rejects the God of life, the result is and only can be death. Right? You say no to the God of life, that's what sin is, all you're left with is death. That's it. It's that simple. The wages of sin is death. But God, right? praise God. Romans 6.23 keeps going. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why glory. We create a problem. We reject God. We owe death. And the very God whom we reject provides the solution and provides the death that we owed. And he does it by coming himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, our sacrifice and substitute, who takes our place, takes our sin, and takes our death. That's glory. The highest got the lowest. The exalted one humiliated himself. For this was the only way to save us, to save his people from their sin. This is the glory of the gospel. And this is the glory that you need. We are all glory hogs. We are all of us seeking glory. Why do I run? In part because I'm seeking glory. I want to be faster than people. I want to be fitter than people. I want to win a race. I want to be better. We're looking for glory. Why do I want to be a great preacher? In my sin, it's so that I can be glorious and demonstrate my own significance and that I matter. Glory, glory, glory. You're after glory. Do you know how you pursue it apart from this? Because this is the only glory that actually satisfies. For this is the only glory that saves. And in saving from death, It is saving you to life, the God of life and glory, the one you were made for from the beginning, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the one in whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Psalm 16 really messes with me because I don't believe that. If I really believed that full joy and pleasure forevermore was found simply in communion with God, I would pursue that with everything that I have. And yet I don't, because I'm still not fully convinced. But we know that relationship is life. We know that that's where we find true meaning and pleasure and joy. And what Jesus is doing here is restoring us to relationship with the God who is fullness of life. And so that's the glory, eternal glory. And it comes only through the death of the all-glorious one in our place. I love big, bold, provocative claims. Uh, John Owen makes one of my favorites in his very last work. He wrote The Glory of Christ kind of as he was approaching his death. And listen to what he says in his last work. Uh, Owen says, This is the universal remedy and cure, the only balm, the only comfort for all our diseases. That's amazing. That sounds really good, doesn't it? You know, like vitamins don't work. Right, all the science proves that like vitamins don't actually do anything. Like your body doesn't really absorb them. I still take vitamins. You probably probably still take them because like, well, maybe it might work. So why not? If it helps, I'm going to try it, even though it says it probably doesn't really work. Take your vitamins. I'm not saying don't. I'm not a doctor, but I'm just saying like we all pursue these things that we think, hey, maybe this will help a little bit, and so we do it and we pursue it. Owen says, here's the universal remedy and cure for everything. What a word. Wouldn't we pay all that we have for a universal remedy and cure, a balm and a comfort for everything that ails us? And what do you think that he says that he is? It is. 
says, Owen claims that the universal cure, the only cure, is simply a sight of the glory of Christ. One sight, true sight of the glory of Christ. And the Apostle John opens this book in 1.14 saying, and we have seen his glory. And this is where we see it. We see it here, again, by grace, through faith, as we see Christ revealed in this whole book, this whole thing that is here to reveal this Christ to him. You have the universal remedy and cure for all that ails you at your fingertips. Have you seen it? Have you had a glimpse of his glory? Have you found the comfort and cure that is found only in Christ? His saving, transforming, comforting glory is revealed most clearly in the cross, the cross which most clearly reveals God's love for us. Romans 5, 8, you know it well, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the glory of God is revealed and the love of God is revealed in the death of God's Son for us. Therefore, glory transitions naturally and logically to love. The glory of God revealed in the love of God for his people also then naturally transitions to the glory of God revealed in the love of God's people for God's people. Point number two. We move directly from the glory of death to the law of of love. Two more terms that generally do not go together in our minds. Back to the text. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And I love that this verse begins with law. I love that Christ commands law, for it directly contradicts our culture's very conception of what love is. Uh, in one of the Sherlock Holmes books, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle writes, we can't command our loves. Christ can. A new commandment I give to you, love. Look over at chapter 14, verse 15. Here's the very next use of the word commandment in John's gospel. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So again, Christ, Christ seems to have no problem tying law, law and love closely together. We tend to put the two in conflict. Christ puts the two in connection. Christians tend to get very confused when it comes to the law, but it's not all that complicated. In Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked which is the great commandment in the law, he answers in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul does something similar in Romans 13. We miss some of the beauty of Romans, we, get, oh, we argue about government in the first part of Romans 13. We often miss the beauty of the second part of Romans 13. Now listen to Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this Word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The law is all about love, and it always has been. The law in the Bible is never the problem. Romans 7.12, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is not the problem. We, we are the problem. People are the problem. The law is holy and righteous and good. We are unholy and unrighteous and bad. Love is the fulfilling of the law. The problem is that we are so selfishly and sinfully unloving that we are unable to keep that good law of love. That's why we need point one. That's why we need Jesus. That's why he has come to do for us and then to do through us what we could not do for ourselves. But the point for now simply, is, I just want you to see that in Christ's mind, 
Love and law go together. John writes about this in his first epistle and picks up on this in 1 John 5, 3 when he says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Oh, but church, don't miss the end. His commandments are not burdensome. They're good. And they are for our good. And they are all about love, love from God, which results in love for God, which results in love for God's people. And so Jesus says, commandment, love. But how could Jesus say this is a new commandment? I just said that the whole law was and always was about love. Leviticus 19.18, written over a thousand years earlier, says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So how can this be new? Probably in a number of ways. But look at 34 again. I think it has to be that last part. Here's where it starts to get uncomfortable. Love one another is the first part. That's exactly the same as Leviticus, so that's not new. Love one another just as I have loved you. And that's different. That's wonderfully and beautifully and disturbingly different. It's because of how Jesus loved us. Jesus is still here in the context explaining and applying his washing of the disciples' feet. It wasn't really at all about physically cleansing their dirty feet, but it was a sign of his spiritually cleansing their dirty souls, right? Their, their sinful souls. He's pointing to what he's about to do for them on the cross. And we've already seen what was required for that, his own death. Therefore, what Christ is commending, what he is commanding here in this commandment is self-sacrificing, self-giving, self-forgetting, other-focusing, other-pursuing, other-serving love. For that is how Christ has loved us. For this is what love is and does first and foremost. It seeks the good of the loved, and it does so at great cost and at no thought of the self. And so Jesus says, love like that. Love as I have loved you. First Baptist, die to seek and serve one another. Love is defined by Christ. Here's where the world, they may, they may proclaim it, they may talk all they want about it. Only we understand it. Because love is defined by Christ. Love is revealed in the gospel. Love is defined by Christ on the cross. And he says love like that. So love is first action. But I also want to be clear. Love is also affection. Look back at how Jesus begins verse 33. He's talking to his grown disciples. They've just been arguing about which of them is the greatest. right? They're awful. But look at how he starts. Little children. This is the only time in the Gospels that we find this word. But John picks up on it and uses it a number of times in his epistles. There's another regular word for children. This is a different word. This one is more intimate. This is more a term of affection and endearment. Little children, dear children, children whom I love and like. Aren't we so glad that Christ's love for us also includes affection for us? It's not because we're so lovable, and we are not in any way lovable, but it's because he is so perfectly loving. And I am arguing that this loving, praise God, includes liking. This, we are, I'm, I'm jumping into the middle. People are arguing with me at church about this. They disagree with me. So that's fine. And I don't get it. So I'm just going to dump it, and then I'll let you, Harry, deal with it. And you go, go talk with Pastor Harry. Um, but I don't get people's disagreement. We are to love as Christ has loved us. And my argument is that I cannot see in any way that we would want to argue that Christ does not have affection for us, his little children. I cannot conceive in any sense where Christ loved any of us, but he didn't like us. That's a thing right now in churches. Like, oh, I know I have to love him, but I don't have to like him. I think that's wrong. I think you're wrong. If you're holding on to that about someone, especially someone in here, just to step on toes. This idea that maybe Christ performed the action of love for us apart from the affection 
of love for us. Some of you know my wife, Melissa. She's amazing. She's my superior in every way. It'd be like if God was like, yeah, Matthew's wife, Melissa. Yes, of course. She's great. I love her and like her. But that Matthew, I have to love him, I guess, since the Father has given him into my hands, but I just don't like him. He's so grumpy. Now, I am so thankful that that's an impossibility with the active and affectionate love of Christ. Little children, he says, those whom I love. John is reclining on his breast. Those whom I love, those whom I like, those whom I have great affection for, demonstrated in my great action for. He says, Christians, First Baptist, love one another like that. Hey, First Baptist, I think you're called and commanded here to love one another and to like one another. I don't care if people keep arguing with me. I, I, I think they're wrong. Why would we want this to be otherwise? Listen, are we all going to be best friends? Of course not. Are some of us really difficult and unlikable? Of course we are, right? If we went out and somehow got down and opened up ourselves to one another and we were able to reveal our hearts. I was reading an old 17th century Anglican uh, last week and he said, I would rather be hanged by the neck and my body thrown in a swamp than for people to be able to really see into my heart. Amen. You never listen to me if you could see into my heart. And so were we able to do that? There's a good chance that I could be probably the most unlikable person in this room. And so thank God for John 13, 34. The Lord commands us to love one another. And I don't see any way that we can try to like explain that away and qualify, oh yeah, I know, but love is action and but not really affection. We don't have to like each other. I think you're wrong. Surely much of what John wants us to see here in this great focus on and revelation of Christ's love, here's the main things that I want to leave you with, is that it's, it's so much bigger, so much more comprehensive, so much more glorious than we can even begin to imagine. And surely we want First Baptist to be a place that is marked by such wonderful, inexplicable, supernatural love. First Baptist, love each other. And like each other. Well, yeah, but what about, or, oh, sure, you know, in theory. Well, this one person, they did, they did this thing. No, again, I don't care. I don't care if this sounds too pie-in-the-sky idealistic. Again, take it up with Harry if you, if you have a problem with it. That's why I love preaching at other churches. I don't care if you think it's unrealistic. Yeah, but what I do really care about is I care about the gospel. And I know myself a little bit. I know my own wretchedness. I know the sinful selfishness that remains. I know that you little know the depths of my heart. And I know that God perfectly knows all of it. He knows me and my sin infinitely better than even I do. He sees all of it to the depths of my soul. And he forgives all of it. He knows all of it, and he loves me. Listen, if that is true, church, there is nothing too high. There's nothing too difficult. There's nothing too idealistic that he can call us to if his self-sacrificing, substitutionary, dying love is true. Love one another just as I have loved you. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 8. You cannot hear this passage enough. You think you know this passage. You do not. This is not a wedding passage. This is not a romance passage. This is how you are commanded to relate to and love one another. I just don't... Familiarity breeds not contempt as much as apathy sometimes. Listen to these words. Listen to what Paul says. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I don't understand why people love that passage. That passage destroys me. 
That passage rips me apart. If God's word and law are a mirror held up to us, then God save me from myself because I do not like what I see there. Have you ever really considered those verses and considered them specifically and practically? This is very painfully and clearly what love is and does. Consider it in light of some of your recent interactions with others. Maybe consider in light of your most recent conflict with others. Surely Jesus is not telling us to love one another except when things are difficult, except when people are difficult, except when there's conflict and disagreement. So this apparently still applies to all that. How have your interactions been with others? Have you been patient? Have you been kind? Have you envied or boasted? If you're on social media, you have. I couldn't resist. I hate social media. Have you been arrogant? I was just arrogant about social media. What about rude? Have you insisted on your own way? I hate this one. Have you been irritable? Irritable's in there. Resentful, bearing, believing, hoping, enduring, all things. Church, that's what love is. It's very clear. We love to qualify stuff away. There's not a lot of qualification there. Memorize that. Use that. Rehearse it. Uh, Apply it. How short we fall of such love. How perfect and patient must be our God to love us as we so struggle to love him and love each other like that. But it's such a beautiful picture. Love is so much better than we think that it is. And isn't it so neat that such love is law? This is God's will for us. Wouldn't, this, wouldn't, every, wouldn't it be beautiful and amazing if we actually loved one another like this? Hey, wouldn't the world stand up and take notice if we loved one another like this? Well, that seems to be precisely what Christ says. Because look back at John 13. Look at verse 35. Look at what he says. He says, by this, by the love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer, a famous theologian of the 20th century, had a tiny little book called The Mark of the Christian. It's excellent. You can read it in an hour. But it's entirely about this verse. As he argues persuasively that it is our love for one another that is to be the distinguishing mark of any and all Christians. This is what identifies us. This is what sets us apart. Christ's love is so powerful and effective that it marks us and makes us like him, like love. This is how you can tell. This is how you can know. And again, we're not talking about love as the world defines it, but as Christ defines it. But we cannot give up the mark and what, it, what is rightfully ours and what is rightfully understood only by us only by the grace of God, just because the world co-ops it and gets it so wrong. That just means that we need to strive and work extra hard to get it right, and it starts with understanding how perfectly Christ has loved us, and then turning and seeking to love one another as Christ has loved us. And it is by this that Jesus says, the world will know that we are his disciples. A disciple is just a follower. A disciple believes what Jesus says and does what Jesus does. Well, here Jesus says and commands love, and then he perfectly does it on the cross. And so to follow the Lord of love will look like love. And so Schaefer says that such love is the final apologetic. It's our, it's our ultimate argument, our evidence, our proof of the reality of the God who is love. Does that not then raise the stakes as high as possible when it comes to our interpersonal relationships and our love for one another? The world cannot see God, but it can see you, First Baptist. And you are here to reveal God to the world, to reveal what God is like to the world. 
And yes, listen, that happens first and foremost as we speak and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we boldly proclaim the good news of what God has done in Christ to save sinners. Here from this pulpit and then as you scatter out and go into your various spheres of influence with that gospel of good news. But it also happens as we do something that the world does not, that does not have this love, cannot do. And the world cannot love like this, for this is a supernatural love that happens only by grace. And so, brothers and sisters at First Baptist, love one another and start by looking at how God himself has loved you, you, in all your sin and difficulty. See how he has loved you in Christ. See how much bigger and better his love is. What I want to see myself and what I want for my church and, and for you all to see is just, just how different this love is from what we so often do. How profound is the love that truly results from the gospel of grace. And especially how self-forgetting this love is. Are you aware of how aware of yourself that you are? Humility. It's, it's, it's thinking of others, of being aware of, of them, of focusing first on them. Love is self-forgetting, other-focusing, pursuing the other's good. Jesus has gotten low, and he has served. How prone are we today to do the exact opposite? Our first look tends to be to self, tends to be inward. We have our needs, and when our needs um, aren't met. We are sad. And our solution is generally no better than figuring out how to get those needs met. And then we'll be glad. But look at how different this is. Look at how other and outward focused Christ is. This is so countercultural, And it is so often even counter church culture, cultural. Instead of obsessing over my identity, my needs, my fulfillment, my rights, this just gets me to start to change the question entirely to change my focus um, uh, first to why am I so concerned about myself and my needs and my rights? Well, how can I love God and honor him in this situation? How can I seek the good of this other person in this situation? It's, it's this entirely different way of thinking that I still struggle with. Love each other. Focus on each other first. Spend some time meditating this week on Philippians 2. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish, empty, vain ambition. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. That's love. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's love. One commentator says, love is doing whatever it takes to give people whatever they truly need. And it's not easy. We are not good at this. But it is good, church. And God's grace is so good. And so there's great hope, even in our sinful selfishness. And so see and rest and rejoice first in the amazing grace of the God who saves selfish sinners like us. And then see who you can begin to love intentionally, sacrificially, practically. Who can you reach out to? Who don't you know? In this room, what member of your own church are you not even uh, familiar uh, with? Who can you seek to do spiritual good? One of the saddest things is, is that it's often so simple and takes so little effort, and yet we're still focused so on self that we struggle to even send that text or make that call or care enough to ask someone how they are doing. God, help us and forgive us. Among the many great lines in Augustine's Confessions, he writes these as, as prayers to the Lord. Augustine says, I have become a puzzle to myself. Amen. Yeah, yeah a, lot of, a lot of God's grace starts with that realization. And listen, it's, it's easy to start off with silly illustrations and to joke about cronuts and serving my wife as a pretense to serving myself. But Listen, it is indicative of a reality that resides deep and disturbingly in my heart. And so then I assume in the heart of many of you as well, 
It is this, this, this pride, this love of self, this self-focus, this self-concern, this self-obsession. But oh, that self is so enslaving. And I'm so tired of that self. And it is so liberating by the grace of God to be able to begin to set aside and forget that self. Yes, love is gold. Yes, protect your heart. But don't do it in the way that the world tells you to. It doesn't work. And just look around. Look at our world. Look at how miserable it and everyone in it is if you want proof. Your heart is the problem. Protect it not by looking first to it, but by looking first to Christ, the lover and Savior of sinful, selfish hearts, who then sets those hearts free to look to Him and live and to look to others and love, and in so doing, find life and freedom and fulfillment and satisfaction. I know it seems crazy. It seems paradoxical. Listen, nothing else works. And this beautifully and mysteriously does, because this is what our God is like. And this is how he has created his world to work. Jesus is what we are all looking for, whether we know it or not. He is what we all need, whether we know it or not. And so we need to see the glory of death, of his death for us. And then we need to see the law of love, his good law for us, because he loves us. And what will be the result? Let me give God's word the last word. Flip ahead to John 15. Jesus says so many similar things here. There's just such overlap. But let me close with these words. Let me read for you John 15, verses 9 through 13, and then I'll be done. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Catch this. What's all this love? What's all this law about? I've spoken all this to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I pray that you would find that love of which there is none greater in Jesus. And I pray that you would find joy, full joy. He says, my own perfect God's joy in himself. Perfect joy. He says, my joy will be in you. It's not found anywhere else. It's not found in yourself. It is not found in your changed and improved circumstances. It is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So first Baptist, love him and love one another and your joy will be full and your God will be greatly glorified. Let me close you with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the infinite depths that are revealed to us in it. Father, we could spend our whole lives seeking to get to the bottom and, and never come close. Father, show us that Christ's love is so much better than we begin to understand. Father, Paul prays for us and tells us that we need power to be able to even begin to comprehend Christ's love for us. And so we ask that you would give us that power. We ask that by your spirit, through not my words, but through your word, that we would begin to comprehend just a little bit more the richness of that love, the rest and the joy and the peace that is to be found in the love of Christ. Father, I pray for anyone in here who does not yet know the love of Christ savingly in any way. I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would show them their sin and show them Christ as the only savior of that sin. Grant them Life, Lord. Father, I pray for any brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling to find joy in you. I pray that you would compel them and convince them. And it's not found within, 
And it's not found in improved circumstances, but it is found in Jesus. And I pray that you would drive them to your word. I pray that you would surround them with brothers and sisters in Christ that would love them and point them to Jesus and his perfect love for them. Father, I pray that you would mark this church with such a supernatural love that people come into this place to hear the gospel that creates such love and be saved all to your glory. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. So we ask for your help, Lord. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.